Well, good morning. I see you got over the time change thing quick. So, Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful day that you've blessed us with. We thank you that it is an utter privilege to be part of the household of God. And, and today, Lord, that as we open your word, we just pray, God, as you've touched our lives, as you've cleansed us, that we really would be like that one leper that just wants to come back, give you glory, and live a life of gratitude for all that you've done for us, Lord. We look so forward to the day that we see you face to face, but for now, Lord, we're called to walk by faith. So, Lord, you put truths in the Bible that they wouldn't just be there for our eyes to gaze upon, but for our heart to absorb. So we pray, God, that when we look at this text today, Lord, that your word, it's living and active, and we pray that it would sink down into our heart, Lord, that we would actually absorb its truths, not just to be intellectuals of the scripture, but to be active with your scriptures, Lord, and to live out this word. So we bless you and we pray, God, that you would move by your spirit amongst us in our hearts to prepare us to meet you face to face, hopefully very soon. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in Genesis 32 if you want to turn there. Genesis 32, we're tracking with the patriarch, Jacob, all right? Grandfather Abraham, short area of scripture on his dad Isaac, and quite a bit that we've been looking at with this character by the name of Jacob. But what we're really beginning to see, like I talked about last week, is obviously we're the clay, God's the potter, and he's molding this life, but, but we're beginning to see, really, this guy slowly come and do an end of himself. And I'll tell you what, it's always a blessing when you come to an end of yourself. Because when you come to an end of yourself, you find the fullness of God. And, and that's what God's looking to get us to in each one of our lives. So when we left off last week, there was an agreement made at Mizpah and a line drawn between him and his father-in-law, Laban. All right, <laughs> we don't cross the line. You don't come on my side. I'm not going to come on your side. Even some of it looks like it could be under the threat of death. And he's heading back home because God told him to. So here's one of the things that we start to realize in this chapter is Jacob's really developing a prayer life, but he's starting to listen to what God's saying. All right, would be to God that his people would listen to what he's saying. So we see this with him here, but he's got problems behind him. He's also got problems in front of him because he's got a brother that he's been double-crossing his whole life. And in the last conversation that they really had that he heard about was, look it, after we have dad's funeral, we're having your funeral. We're going to have a two-for-one deal. Because when my dad dies, I'm coming after you, Jacob. You're going down. So this is what he has in front of him, but God still told him to go that direction, okay? God sometimes will allow us to go into directions that can be a bit fearful, and that's sometimes when our trust is put to the test. Remember, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. So we're seeing that Jacob's coming to a greater place of really learning how to trust God with his whole life, not just part of it. So verse 32, Genesis chapter 32, verse 1, Jacob went on his way. 
We look at that real quick, but one of the things that I want to just tell you here is according to the chapter previously that this is the direction that God told him to go. So we're beginning to see that Jacob's new way is God's way. He's starting to listen to God again. He's starting to at least partially obey. So he's going based on a word that God had given him with his family, running from his uncle, heading towards his brother who's not happy with him. And verse 2 here, you, you just picture the uncomfortableness of this all. You know, we live in a day where anxiety is so high. Think of the anxiety that might be involved here, you know, as he's getting ready to meet his brother. And, and it says here, and when Jacob saw... Uh, and the angels of God met him, verse 2, and when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host, and he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So he has, you know, had encounters with angels before, and, and we know that angels actually are ministering spirits who have come forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. But here's one of the things that we see here. Even in a time of, of, of great concern, the psalmist tells us in chapter 34, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps round about that them that fear him and deliver at them. You have been protected in ways you're unaware of. I'll guarantee you that by the angelic realm. You might not even know about it. Throughout the Bible, we see it. Second Kings, there, there's a great account of the Assyrian army and, and they're gathered around Elisha and his servant. And, and it says here that, um, verse 14, you don't have to turn there. Therefore said he horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and they compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, there was a, a host compassed about the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, what are we going to do? The enemy has got us encamped. And he answered, Fear not, for they which be with us are more than they that be with them. Remember, do remember this, that, you know, when Lucifer fell as a high arch, you know, as a high archangel in heaven, he did take a third of the angels with him, but two thirds still stayed on God's side. So we see here, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened his eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountains was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Why? Because the Bible tells us the angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear him and delivereth him. That's 2 Kings chapter 6. You know, there was a missionary by the name of John Payton, and he, he was a, a missionary to the, the cannibalistic uh, tribal people of the New Hebrides Islands. And um, there was one day when, when the, the cannibals, the, the native people came, and they actually surrounded the mission house, and, and they had it in their heart to kill them. And um, and him and his wife, they just sought God in prayer. They got on their knees there, just, you know, interceding to God, just asking God to, you know, claim, claim any scriptures and everything else. And then all of a sudden they could hear just all the, the natives go away. So later on, uh, one of the heads of the tribe actually uh, got saved. And, and John Payton asked him, he said, were, were you part of that, you know, that group that was coming? And he goes, oh yeah, we were part. We had you all surrounded. He goes, what were you going to do? He goes, we were going to kill you. He goes, well, what stopped you? He goes, what stopped us was all those people that you had standing around uh, the mission building that in the shining garments that all had swords in their hand. That's what stopped us. You know, see, we have no idea the way that God's protecting our lives in so many ways. 
And, and we see here Jacob's experience in this, but I'll tell you what, God loves you just as much as he did Jacob. And God's heart is to protect you just as much as he did Jacob, just as much as he did John Payton and the new, or the new uh, uh, Hebrides. So, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, under the land of Seir and, and the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall you speak unto my Lord Esau, thy servant Jacob. So he's calling him. He's embracing his authority. He's putting himself in a place of submission. So you can see that what's going on here with Jacob, there is a form of humility that's beginning to, to really grow in his heart as God's working in his, lives, in his life. And he says, Thy servant Jacob. Jacob said thus, I've so sojourned with Laban, and I stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, men servants, women servants, and I've sent to tell my Lord that I might find grace in thy sight. So he's looking for unearned grace as unearned favor. He's looking for this unearned favor in his brother's sight who he has wronged on so many occasions. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to thy brother Esau, and he comes to meet you, and he's got 400 men with him. So you think about what that did to Jacob's heart. So, so what we see here is Jacob was so greatly afraid and distressed, okay? So he went into anxiety. He's in panic mode here. And, and he says that he divided the people that was with him, the flocks, the herds, the camels, into two bands. And he said, if Esau come to one company and smite it, then the other company which shall be left shall escape. So what do we see here? He starts a plan, all right? Uh, Jacob starts a plan. And, and in verse 9, and it said, and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham. And then what does he do? He prays. So there's a plan and a prayer. The problem here is in the wrong order, okay? He planned first, he acted first, and then he prayed. The Bible says to seek ye first the kingdom of God. You know, always prioritize, you know, seeking God in any of the situations, any of the places that you find yourself in, this crazy thing that we call life down here. Don't get that order reversed. He planned and he prayed. We're called to pray and then we plan. Let God establish our plan through the gift to pray. So, he prays here. He's got his, you know, he's like, all right, I'm going to split my family in half. If they kill one of them, at least I got the other half. And, and Jacob said, oh, God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, the Lord which said unto me, return unto thy country. So where do we find him? I'm going to tell you something right now, that there is no safer place in this world to be than to be right in the will of God to be right in the will of God. And, and look where he is here. He said, you said unto me, return unto thy country and in thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. But look at this in verse 10. Just look what's going on on the inside of this man. I'm not worthy of the least of these mercies. I'm not worthy of the least of these mercies and of a truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan and I've now become two bands or I've been two groups. I want you to know something very interesting here. If you will, turn with me for a moment to Luke chapter 18. Luke's gospel, chapter 18, account you're probably familiar with. Now, I, I want you to notice the way the heart that Jacob's coming to almighty God, holy of holies, king of kings, Lord and Lord. He says, I'm not worthy of the least of thy mercies. 
I want you to notice something about him. He's coming to God not based upon his merit, but he's coming to God based upon his mercy. He has nothing in his life to impress God with that God should listen to him or answer him. It's very easy for us, and I've heard this as we've prayed before. You pray for people. You want to come to God, and sometimes you want to showcase all the good things that you see in this person's life, and, and that's why God should heal them. I just went through that with my son. I think about all the good things with the trial he, we just went through with him, and, and I was just thinking about all the good things about him. But as I began to pray, it's like, Lord, we're not coming based on merit. We're coming on mercy because the bottom line is it's nothing in my performance that can receive from you the good that I need or it would be something earned, and you're a God that gifts. God wants to gift us. That's why we don't come bragging on the goodness of one another, bragging upon even our own selves, but we come bragging on the character of Almighty God because he's so good and he wants to pour his mercies out upon us. Look what we see here in Luke chapter uh, 18. We see in verse uh, 9, and he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves. All right, that's the problem when we're trusting in ourselves uh, that we're right, that they were righteous. Why? Because look where all the trust was. They think that they earned it. You know, God, I got this coming because I performed. It's not about our performance. The only performance we can brag upon is the fact that the Son of God was impelled to a cross and he bled for our sins and exclaimed, it is finished. And we get to embrace that gift into our lives that we did not earn. It's given to us because of God's mercy. So he says here that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. And that's the problem, man. Self-righteous people are the most nauseating people in the world because they think they earn their righteousness and it causes them to look down on other people, not understanding the grace and the mercy of God. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. The one's a Pharisee, the other a publican, okay? So a religious dude and, and a and a Immoral dude, whatever you want to call him. So the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. So the Pharisee's praying with himself. You know what that means? That means that the, the prayers aren't getting past the ceiling. He says, God, all right, now he's got the lingo. He's got the acknowledgement. He, he, you know, he's not denying God. God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. <laughs> what a winner. So, so he says, he goes, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So, so what is he doing? He's coming and he's throwing his resume out to God about how wonderful he is. You know, now look at the other guy. The other guy says, and the publican standing far off, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breath saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay, so this guy came with nothing to offer. He came to God based upon what? Based on the goodness of the wonderful character of who Almighty God is. And Jesus said this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. So there's a good work of humility beginning in Jacob's life. All right? And he's no longer coming because the thing about the character of God that's so wonderful is even if you know how bad you are, you can still come. And we see Jacob doing this here. Now, you can turn back to uh, Genesis with me. 
But the mercy of God, the grace of God, it's something that we cannot earn. It's something that we're gifted because of the goodness of God. He says this in verse 11, deliver me. He's got a lot going on. He says, I deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. I'll tell you what, there's a far greater deliverance that we need than the deliverance of any external enemy, adversary, difficulty. God's going to do, he's going to answer this question. He's going to deliver him. But Jacob needed to be delivered from Jacob before Jacob could be delivered from Esau. And so many times we look and the greatest deliverance of our life needs to be the deliverance from self and everything that's attached to it, whether it's self-lordship, self-sufficiency, self-trust, self-interest, self-agenda, whatever it might be. And this is what's happening here. God loves Jacob so much, he's going to begin to extract Jacob from Jacob. For I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the, mo- and the mother with the children. And look what he says, verse 12. And you said, okay? Now he's putting it back on God. He's reminding God. And you said, like God's forgetful, right? And, and you said, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. You know what he's doing? He's reminding God of his promises. You know why we got to remind God of his promises? Not because he forgets, because we forget. And I love it because Tuesday nights, we have so many people that just pray the scriptures. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing that's greater medicine to your heart than the word of God. And whether it's being professed by yourself or being professed by somebody else or read off the pages of the Bible, it does something. If the heart's open, it does something. And and he's being reminded here. So in reminding him of the promises that God spoke to his life, his own faith is being strengthened. All right, that ministered to him. That's why it's so important that, that, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We're to declare the word of God, even if we're the only one listening. When I get up here and teach before you, I'm spitting all this your way, but you know what? It's coming back to me because this has power in it. And this is why we teach and this whole church is built upon the word of God and nothing else. It's not built on talent or anything else. It's built upon the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, because this does stuff in people's life who want it because God loves us. So he's reminding, he said, Lord, you said, I mean, I'm in the waiting room of strong and I'm like, Lord, you said, and, and I'm, you know, all these things are going through my mind to the promises of God and, and so thankful that no matter what I go through, I have hope because I have promises and, and my mind's going to not something I can find on Google, you know, to give me some kind of a hope and encouragement, but something that I find in the living word of God that gives me hope and encouragement. That's why we remind God of the promises. He didn't forget we do. And it's important that we do. And he lodged there that same night and took of which was uh, to his hand a, a present to Esau, his brother, 200 she-goats, 20 he-goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, 30 milch camels with their colts, 40 kine, 10 bulls, 20 she-donkeys, and 10 fowls. So I don't know, he want, must he wanted to bless them with a zoo, I guess. And, and he delivered them into the hand of the servants, every, every drove by themselves, and said unto his servants, pass over before me, and put a space between each one of the droves. And he commanded the foremost, saying, when he saw my brother meet you, and he asked you, saying, whose art thou? And where are you going? And whose are thee before thee? 
Thou shalt say, They be thy servant Jacob's. To present, send unto my Lord Esau. And behold, also he's behind us. And so commanded he the second and the third and all that followed the drove, saying, On this matter shall you speak unto Esau when you find him. And say ye moreover, Behold, the servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with a present that goeth before me, and afterwards I will see his face, preadventure he will accept me. So went and present over before them, and himself lodged that night in the company, and he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons, and they passed over the four Jacob. And he took them, and he sent them over the brook, and sent over all that he had, and Jacob was left alone. We're going to see a great work get accomplished in Jacob's life in these following verses. But I think it couldn't take place until Jacob was alone. I was sharing with our young adult study the other night that, you know, just the distractions of life, man, I battle them terrible. You know, life just seems complicated, doesn't it? I I just think we live in complicated days. Paul said they'd be perilous days. And that's not a complaint. We were born for such a time as this. We're here on purpose. But the discipline has to be greater to focus. And, And when distractions are at a minimum focus can be more to maximum. And everything had been put in its place, had been removed, and it was just Jacob alone. The greatest personal experiences I've ever had with Jesus Christ has been when I'm all alone, when it's just me and him. Whether it's taking a day to go fast and pray and seek the Lord, spend some time somewhere in the woods, whatever, driving down the road by yourself praying, you know, or just grabbing your Bible and going somewhere where nobody else is. It's a hard place to find, but it's a place we need to find because there's things that God wants to communicate. There's experiences that God wants to give us with Jesus Christ that we can only experience one-on-one, one-on-one. You see it with Jesus, how he met people one-on-one. So we see Jacob here. He's left all alone, and, and you think about everything running through his mind. If I go backwards, my life's threatened. If I go forward, my life has been threatened. So he looks back, he looks forward, difficulties on all fronts. I think we live in a world where God's told his end time church to look around, there's going to be difficulties on all front. And when you're looking around, difficulties are on all front, look up for your redemption draws nigh. That's the direction the church needs to be looking these days. To receive hope and encouragement. Because you and I, we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. There's something different about the way we handle this thing called life and the craziness that we've been dealt in 2022. And there wrestled him a man with him until the breaking of the day. So all of a sudden out of nowhere appears this man, but he appears like an aggressor opponent. Like he lays his hands on Jacob. It's like, man, if my life couldn't get any worse, now I'm in the middle of a wrestling match some stranger I don't even know. And I'll give you, I'll fast forward a little bit to you, but this is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ that we know as a theophany. And he's actually going to be wrestling with God here. Now, 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 wrestling, when you think about the sport of wrestling, you know, I absolutely hated the sport of wrestling until I saw my kids' first wrestling match. Then the hook was set. And I loved it from there on out. And I met a lot of great guys in the wrestling field over the years. But wrestling speaks about two individuals who struggle with each other to get the upper hand and to prevail over the opponent. 
The goal is to pin your opponent to a place of surrender. Maybe they tap out, surrender, or submit. I remember the transition of youth wrestling to varsity wrestling. They go out and they'd wrestle three one-minute periods. And then it was three two-minute periods. Like, oh my goodness, man, those poor kids out there, man. They're just wrestling to the point of exhaustion. Well, this thing took place through the night all the way to the morning. So you can think about the exhaustion that was taking place in Jacob's life. So we're looking at this, and like I said, his opponent here is an Old Testament appearance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and, and we see him wrestling, and it's like, well, he, you mean Jesus couldn't beat Jacob? Come on. Of course he can, but he's going to wait for the will of Jacob to choose to surrender and to choose to submit. So we see it's an all-night wrestling deal. And it says, and when he, he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, threw his hip out of joint. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, if you know anything about the sport, obviously your legs, your base is your strongest muscle. All right? And, and, and these legs that he's been using, he's been running from the trouble that he's created his whole life. And he's not going to be able to run anymore. He's not going to be able to run from the trouble he's created. He's going to have to trust this God that loves him in the midst of the trouble. So we see here it's dislocated, okay? And, and the Word of God tells us that God has the ability to bring beauty from ashes. You think about, you know, the expense of a pearl. You know, a pearl is so valuable. And the reason it's so valuable is because it's formed by an oyster's internal response to a wound that's caused by an irritant such as a grain of sand. Something beautiful is created that would have been impossible without the wound. And that's what God's trying to do here. He's trying to create something beautiful in this life. But for something beautiful in this life to take place, there has to be a wound created. Jacob would not surrender. Jacob would not yield. Jacob would not submit. So it had to get more difficult for him. So all of a sudden we see here his hips out of joint. Literally, it's dislocated. And one of the things that God does is he's trying to get us to the place of blessing in our life is he's got to dislocate things. And I'm not talking about a hip or an elbow or anything like that. I'm talking about the fact that he's got to dislocate us from self-sufficiency, from self-trust, from personal lordship, from always being at the helm of the life that God brought with his blood that he deserves to be at. One of the dangers for you and I in the days that we live, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is a panoramic of the church age. And you've got a small remnant of Philadelphia people who kept his word, didn't deny his name, and then you got the Laodicean church that basically said, I have need of nothing. And Jesus wasn't even in that church. He was knocking on the door trying to get in. So we have the opportunity in the days that we're living in to be a Philadelphian or to be a Laodicean. And sometimes God has to create circumstances, even pain in our life, to dislocate us from self-trust, from natural understanding, from always trying to finagle our way around things and to really learn how to trust God, depend on God, and lean on God in our life in a real way. In a real way. Not just our theology, our experience, our life. 
Verse 26 said, let me go. It's, it's the Lord speaking to Jacob for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let thee go except you bless me. He's clinging to him. He's clinging to this pre-incarnate experience with Jesus. He's clinging. That's where God wants to get us to. You know, we can quote, in him we live and we move and have our being, but are we clinging to that? That, Lord, it's you that I live and I move and I have my being. You see, it's got to be more than just scriptures that we can quote. It's got to be the condition of a heart that we choose to live with. You know, if you remember, you know, he's clinging to him. Remember at the garden tomb. Do you remember Mary Magdalene? He had to tell her, let me go. She's clinging to him. Rabboni, master, you delivered me. Your touch on my life compares to nothing in this world. I'm not letting go. And we see Jacob here. He's, he's clinging. You know what he's doing? He's learning dependency. He's learning dependency. He's clinging tenaciously to the source of life and blessing. Hosea tells us in this account that he actually wept and he made supplication. And we look at this, and I think one of the things that we need to remember is that the ways of God are unfathomable to, a, to an infinite mind like God, to a finite man's mind like you and me. And I hold on to the fact that the secret things belong to the Lord and the fact that his ways aren't our ways and we don't always get it. But we don't need to. We need to trust. Nor in the Bible I can find it says I need to understand. But everywhere in the Bible it tells me I need to trust. I don't always know what God's doing. I can't always explain what God's doing. I wish I could. But I can't. I'm just called to trust what God's doing and encourage other people to trust what God's doing. Some of you are facing things in life that are out of your control, that don't make sense. Why? If you love me, why? We're called to trust and to remember that the circumstances of our life do not prove the love of God. The cross of Jesus Christ for our life proves the love of God. He wept and he made supplication. A.W. Tozer said this, It is doubtful that God could use anyone greatly until he's wounded him deeply. Turn to uh, 2 Corinthians with me a moment. I think it's 12. So here you got Paul the Apostle, right? We track his life through the book of Acts. He wrote so many of the epistles to us. I mean, who has not gleaned from the writings of this great man of God who loved Jesus Christ probably more than anybody other than maybe, well, it doesn't matter. God knows the heart. But look what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, speaking about himself. He says, lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelation given to me, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I, I, I sought the Lord three times that, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. The principles of the kingdom of God are so different in comparison to the principles of the kingdom of man. Jesus told him this, that my strength is actually perfected in you through your weakness. Most gladly, I mean, you think of Paul. Paul had the ability to raise people from the dead. He prayed over people. People got healed. He, saw the, he, he asked God for healing, and God says, I'm going to give you grace. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distressions for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, naturally, physically, then I am strong, spiritually. Just read this to you out of the Phillips translation. So tremendous, however, were the revelations that God gave me that in order to prevent me from becoming absurdly conceited, I was given a stabbing pain, one of Satan's angels, to plague me and effectually stop any conceit. Three times I begged the Lord for it to leave me, but this was his supply. My grace is enough for you, for where there is weakness, my power is shown the more completely. Therefore, I have cheerfully made up my mind to be proud of my weaknesses because they mean a deeper experience of the power of Christ. I can even enjoy weaknesses, insults, privations, persecutions, and difficulties for Christ's sake, for my very weakness makes me strong in him. Jacob's being delivered. He's being delivered from Jacob. Back to Genesis, just like the radio show. Back to Genesis. Now, now this takes place on the other side of brokenness. And, and he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. So, middle of a wrestling match. I've never heard two wrestlers introducing themselves. <laughs> hey, what's your name? What school you go to? But God asked him a question. What's your name? He said, Jacob. Con man. Heel catcher. Deceiver. Surplanter. Huckster. Shucker and a jiver. Whatever you want to call him. But back then, the name was much more than just your handle. It spoke about your identity. And he had to come face to face with who he really was. And look at it, he says, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince you found, thou had power with God and with men, and you prevailed. So now what? God changes his name and his identity. That's the gift for us, you know, that if any man be in Christ, Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Because you know what we have here? We have a whole room of people with a past identity. And I would not want to be identified by the things that I used to do, and the things that I used to say, and the things that I used to participate in, because I've got a new identity in Jesus Christ. He gives us that opportunity to have a new identity. Now, they didn't change my name on the birth certificate. I still got the same name, but I'll tell you what, I'd take a changed name or changed identity over a changed name any day. Jacob, heel catcher, deceiver. And now Israel, one who's wrestled with God, one who's prevailed, or literally God rules. Some people say governed by God. Getting to a place in our life where we get to a point of absolute surrender where God can have supreme rule over our lives. And you know, here's the bottom line. God loves you enough to wrestle with you and to accomplish whatever he needs to do in you because he knows what's best for you and me, and we don't. So you see, he wants a blessing, and, and, and Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou ask thy name? And, and, and he blessed him there. So where do we see the blessing take place? The blessing took place on the other side of his brokenness. The blessing took place on the other side of surrender. That's where the blessing took place. When you look at the Bible, blessings so often come on the other side of pain, brokenness, and surrender. Remember Gideon, right? They go forth to blow the trumpets and, and they got to break that jar because in that jar, 
held the torch, held the lamp that would illuminate. And it took that brokenness of that external jar that actually allowed the light that was inside to shine. The woman with the alabaster box that anointed the feet of Jesus doing what she could do. Once that box was broken, the beautiful fragrance was poured out upon the Lord. The little boy brings the loaves and the fishes to Jesus and Jesus gives thanks. He breaks them and he multiplies them to go out and to bless a multitude. And then the best is you go to the cross, to a wooden Roman cross, and you see the Son of God's body bruised beaten and broken and through it was released the power of divine forgiveness for people on their way to hell. So much good, so many blessings can come forth on the other side of brokenness. You know, I think my favorite Christian song, not that you care, but just so you know, is a song by the name of Blessings by Laura Story. We went and saw her at... uh, down in Bath, and, and she was just amazing. But, but I think about this song, and, and so many times, like we know about Horatio Spafford, it is well with my soul, so many times the inspiration behind some of these beautiful fragrances of worship come forth from a broken life. And, and she wrote that song on the heels of almost losing her husband in 06 to a brain tumor. But some of the richness of what she wrote was, I'll read it to you. We pray for blessings. We pray for peace. I won't sing it to you. That ain't happening. Comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. Prosperity. We pray for healing, mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through the tears? What if there's a thousand sleepless nights or what it takes to know that God's near? What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you're near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love as if each promise from your word is not enough. And all the while, you hear each desperate plea And long that we would have the faith to believe. When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know that the pain reminds this heart, this is not, this is not our home. What if the greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is a revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What if the trials of this life, the rain, the storm, the hardest nights are your mercies in disguise? We have to view this life through the lens of God's word and to trace and see what the hand of God is doing and to trust the heart of the one that's doing it. And he blessed him. He blessed him on the other side of pain. He blessed him on the other side of brokenness. And he blessed him on the other side of surrender. And he called the name of that place Penuel, for I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. And he's passed over Penuel. The sun rose upon him and he halted upon his thigh. And therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and the sinew that shrank. Jacob would lean on a staff, according to the end of this book, Genesis, according to Hebrews 11. He would have to learn how to lean. He'd have to learn how to lean on God the rest of his life. 
But his limp would always be a reminder that he was blessed. And sometimes we got to look at the pain in our life as a reminder, not always necessarily from the pain, but the fact if we belong to Jesus Christ regardless of the pain, we are blessed. Although Jacob lost the encounter physically, he won a great spiritual victory. He learned to triumph through defeat and to be strong through weakness. May we also, by the grace of God. Father, we thank you for giving us examples like Jacob to look to, Lord, and we thank you that you're a God that takes what looks like it's evil and you work these things to the good. You promise to work good in the lives of those who love you, all things to the good. And when we look at Jacob, Lord, we're just blessed over the transformation of a life because we recognize that's exactly what you want to do with each one of us. So I pray, Father, that when you return to this earth, you deserve a church that's like a chaste virgin. And I pray, God, that there be no holds barred with your family here, that you would meet and encounter each one of us, Lord, and that you would wrestle us to the point of us yielding our will to you, that we might surrender the things over to you that you want to transform in each one of our lives. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for giving us examples like a Jacob that we can so easily identify with. And we pray, God, as your return draws near, that there would be a greater embrace of you and a greater surrender to you. May you accomplish the very purposes of why you created each person in this room here today. And may you do whatever's necessary to make sure that happens for your honor and for your glory, that our lives would count for the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So many blessings on the other side of personal pain. You know, just as we were worshiping, I had a memory of sitting in a, a booth eating lunch with a friend of mine that used to come to this church years ago. He's a very successful man, had everything in the world going for him, and it all fell apart. Lost his money, lost his health. We're talking, and he, he's pretty much blind. But he told me, he goes, Jeff, I would never trade who I once was for who I now am in Christ. And he's in glory today. His pain led to his blessing, and now he's receiving the fullness of it in heaven. So look at life through the lens of the scripture, because that's the only way it makes sense. God bless you. Have a great day.